Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the hard way to enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. Follow Jelly Roll Morton, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz, in this ambitious musical masterpiece that's sure to blow the roof off the theater. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Your day's off to a good start. Nice to get a break in the rain, which we'll be able to enjoy for a couple of days, wring ourselves out, and repeat the process with rain expecting to come for this weekend. And that, of course, giving public works officials, Caltrans, and private property owners limited time to try and redress some of the challenges they've seen, whether it's with transportation or other infrastructure or even one's own home. I don't know about you, but uh, as a hillside resident myself, I have a few things to take care of with mud and water that have gone places they shouldn't. It's just uh, you know part of the weather extremes we experience here in Southern California. We begin our update of where things stand with communications, or I'm sorry, public information officer for the Los Angeles City Fire Department, Captain Eric Scott. Captain, thank you very much for being with us. You were out and about over the course of these couple of days of torrential rains. What were some of the most dramatic things you saw? Uh, well, good morning, Larry. Yes, your Los Angeles City Fire Department has been very, very busy. We actually ran an additional 105 911 calls, and, and we saw quite a few things. There was, uh, of course, a lot of road closures due to some of the roadways eroding from the rain. That's along Laurel Canyon, Mulholland Drive, Coldwater Canyon. Uh, we had a home on a hillside in Hollywood along Marywood Drive that started to slide down. We worked with building and safety to, to red tag that, meaning it's unsafe to enter. A lot of traffic accidents. You know, we had a large propane truck that turned on its side. We had a potential double fatality traffic accident in South L.A., so we really want people to slow down when they're driving. And then a lot of debris flows just from, you know, the we can only – uh, have so much water be absorbed before these uh, hillsides and yourself as a hillside resident knows it starts to slip away. So we've seen a lot of that. Fortunately, it hasn't had any huge damage, but it's definitely impacted a lot of roadways and slid up against people's homes and yards. And so we're working with those residents to, to ensure that we can mitigate those as as safe as possible. I was reading that portions of Mulholland Drive between Laurel Canyon and Coldwater were going to be closed up to weeks. And can you share with us what's happened there? Has the road been undermined? Uh, correct. Um, it has. And so it, it, it'll take a while for that to, to be repaired, for it to be safe enough for people to drive through without becoming a victim themselves as well as bicyclists even that we don't want going through those areas. You know, the fire department is really there for the beginning part of an emergency. If you look at an emergency, simply put, maybe there's four stages to it. You have preparation where we want people to to prepare ahead of time. Then we have the response and mitigation where the fire department is heavily involved. And now for some of these old incidents, you kind of move into a recovery phase. During that phase, we're working with a lot of additional uh, L.A. City 
uh, agencies like LA Public Works, you got Street Services, Department of Transportation, Bureau of Engineering, um, that all help out with restoring those roads uh, back to being safe, and that's just going to take some time. We're talking with Captain Eric Scott, Public Information Officer at the L.A. County Fire Department. Uh, Early on in the storm, there was the harrowing incident in Chatsworth in the West Valley, where a couple of cars found themselves in a sinkhole. Two of the people in one of the cars had to be rescued. And uh, how was that carried out? That was a very dynamic rescue, and firefighters, without a doubt, did an outstanding job, and everyone listening could be very proud of them because uh, it was not a, an easy rescue. A very unusual, significant size of a sinkhole. When we arrived on scene and you're walking up this um, road in the dark and it's pouring rain, you could only see the top of one roof of a vehicle, and beneath that was a second vehicle to give you some idea of how big that sinkhole was. Um, and fortunately, on the top, there was a silver truck those people climbed out and, and barely made it out but we found them underneath the bridge just trying to get some refuge from the rain but that's really where our work began because underneath was a, a black sedan and there was people still trapped inside a 14 year old teenager and a woman in her 30s and they couldn't get out and we have to be very safe and cautious we don't want to become victims ourselves that's not helping anyone so um the what we had is a lot of water was running down this street, which was fairly steep. So that hole is beginning to fill with water. The asphalt is continuing to crack. The cars were shifting and rolling as it's continuing to erode. So the first thing we did is try to lay some long ladders across the hole to allow us to safely uh, spread our weight, get down, open the door, and hopefully pull them out. But that just simply didn't work as these vehicles were rolling and moving. So we did what we call a high-angle rope rescue. It's very technical, but we use um, an aerial ladder truck. You might just see them driving down the street. It's the big, long truck. Well, we have a ladder on top of that that we lower a rope and a rescue, a firefighter, and a harness down, opened up that door, secured those victims one at a time, hoisted both the rescuer and the victim back out to safety, and went in and did it again for the second one. Uh, before they were swallowed up. So we're very proud of the hard work that firefighters did there. We're talking with L.A. City Fire Captain Eric Scott about some of the more dramatic incidents, obviously terrifying for the people in that car that were deep in that sinkhole. And uh, can you share with us the cause of that? Is that typically just water getting under the asphalt of the road and and eroding the dirt underneath? Or is there something likely that predated the heavy rains in that area, which made that susceptible to a sinkhole? That's a good question, Larry. That is part of an ongoing investigation. It certainly was eroding underneath to the extent the black asphalt was kind of like a cookie that would just crumble when it got weight on it when these vehicles came by. So we had definitely a lot of water that was churning underneath the asphalt that you couldn't see that was eroding away. Excuse me, whether that also would be any of the pipes underneath there the water pipes look to be secure. There's a sewer pipe that's severed. We don't know when that took place. That's part of the investigation. But as we bring it back to your listeners, what it means to them is if you can't see the ground beneath you when you're driving, don't drive through that area. 
and oftentimes people will assess when they see flooding that they think is minor that, oh, this is just going to come up a little bit on my tires. I'm safe to go through it. How should people make that determination of whether they can proceed through, say, a flooded intersection or a street that has a depression? You know, that's a good question. A lot of people are surprised to learn that we have about 6,000 to 9,000 water-related injuries that end up in death every year, 6,000 to 9,000. The scary part of that is one-third are would-be rescuers. So we really want people to avoid those areas. If they're driving and it's pouring rain, I know it's difficult to see, uh, but you don't want to drive through a flooded area where you cannot see the pavement, to make it that simple. Let's say... you did get stranded and your car is now moving with water. Uh, we want you to stay with your vehicle. Call 911, know your location. People are so frantic, they don't know where they are. We can't come to you if you don't know where you are. Know your location, stay with your vehicle, move to the hood if the water continues to rise and uh, we'll come and save you. Other thing is, of course, power lines often come down in the high winds or if you have um, poles that are compromised by debris flows. Uh, Your advice for people about ways to avoid any contact, not just directly with the wire, but any conducting materials which which could uh, do great damage to you. You're right, Larry. Simply put, stay away from power lines and electrical wires. Uh, Consider them to be energized and potentially lethal if you see them on the ground. The water only exasperates that challenge because it conducts electricity. So would a chain link fence if it landed on that. So we have to kind of be safe and cautious, risk versus gain, and use common sense. Uh, If it's just a down line and there's no real threatened, our our friends from DWP can be contacted and they could come out, shut off the the power and, and put that Uh, that line back into service. If there's a threat of of life and safety, of course, that's where 911 comes in, and we'll come out with lights and sirens and, and mitigate that problem. Thank you so much, Captain Scott. We appreciate your talking with us about the aftermath of the torrential rains affecting large portion of the city of Los Angeles. You're welcome, sir. Thank you. Public Information Officer, L.A. City Fire Captain Eric Scott with us. Now from the Los Angeles County Department of Public Works, Communications Manager Kurjan, uh, Kurjan Lee. Kurjan, thank you very much for being with us. And uh, just share with us how the the uh, infrastructure held up with the debris catch basins and other flood mitigation measures. Yeah, thank you so much, Larry. And uh, that was a fascinating account by Captain Scott. There are agencies throughout the region working together. In fact, uh, uh, L.A. County Public Works and the county had 700 people, uh, crew members, working through this storm. The infrastructure that we managed did a great job uh, with this storm, but, of course, uh, there are mud flows and uh, mud and debris on the roads, especially in the Antelope Valley, uh, and that had some pretty significant impact for uh, commuters up there. And uh, you have the debris basins, of course, which the county manages, where you've got the very steep uh, hills and mountains uh, coming down to the flats of residential neighborhoods. Um, have have those debris basins, particularly in fire areas like Duarte, been able to, to catch most of that runoff? They have, they have. And so those debris basins are strategically placed in the foothills. Uh, and in burn areas to capture that mud debris flow to protect downstream communities. And they've done a great job with that. 
But uh, as uh, Captain Scott mentioned, um, you know, our facilities can only do so much. And so the public has a role in knowing their flood risk and preparing their homes uh, to divert stormwater and mud away from their homes and structures and into the streets. All right. Kershaw Lee, anything else to add about the infrastructure as we prepare for the next series of storms coming this weekend? Well, the great news that we have is that we've been able to capture uh, about 11 billion gallons of water, rainwater, for uh, reuse, for drinking water in the future. And so we have a significant role uh, here at Public Works and in the county in providing that local water supply uh, that uh, uh, offsets the domestic water that comes in. So um, you know, that's our role, one of our missions, and we've uh, you know, done a great job, I think, in uh, this past storm and in the past uh, uh, storm since October in doing that. And we're looking forward to the, more, to the additional rain that we get fall this, um, this winter. Where, where is most of that rainwater captured, and then is it injected into the aquifer for storage, or where does it go? Well, we manage 14 major dams in the foothills and mountains, and that's kind of a, a secret that most uh, residents don't know. Uh, that water is held, it's captured and stored there, and then brought down uh, through channels into spreading grounds. We've got 27 spreading grounds kind of strategically placed throughout L.A. County, and that water is allowed to percolate into the groundwater system where it's pumped up by uh, partners by, like uh, LADWP to provide to customers. All right, very good. And how many billion gallons did you say were were captured during this most recent storm? Uh, just over a billion gallons, just wow. over a billion gallons, so enough for about 25,000 people for one year. All right. Well, uh, let's hope with the continuing series of storms that that, um, that ability to capture continues. We thank you, Kershaw Lee of L.A. County Public Works. Thanks very much. Thank you, Larry. Also with us, uh, former KPCC correspondent, uh, NPR independent journalist Stephanie O'Neill. Yesterday she talked with us about the challenges in Ojai where three of the four access highways were blocked as a result of debris or water damage to the roads. Stephanie, thanks for joining us again today. How, how has Ojai held up so far? Well, it's it's of course now the the calm before the storm. Literally, um, things look a lot better this morning in terms of the roads, you know, getting cleared off of the mud and some of the debris that's fallen on them. Just the local roads here. The uh, as you mentioned, the three of our four main routes out are still closed. That can last a really long time. Uh, last time uh, that happened was in 2005, and uh, as I mentioned to you yesterday, it was. We had massive traffic jams once things got back to normal and people were trying to get back to work, which, you know, this is a little bedroom community for Ventura. People work in Ventura and in Oxnard and Santa Barbara. So getting out is really important. And, um, yeah, there were four-hour traffic jams every every morning to, to get out. People just inched along. And I don't know if we're going to run into that. I don't know how bad the washouts are and the damage on those other roads, but um, that's going to be one consequence of this. Um, Right now, the, the rivers are a little bit lower, but they are still raging. I mean, if you hadn't seen what they were like the last couple of days, you'd still be astounded. Um, again, once dry arroyos are just, you know, roiling with turbulent water, and um, I'm just curious, like, how we're going to access. People love to come up here for trails, and for those of us who live here, we use the trails. Um, I have horses, so we ride on them, and I'm at our barn right now, and there's just no access to our mountains, and of course, mm. Everything is muddy and sloppy. 
Yeah, and uh, getting the horses out, getting some exercise, looks like that's going to be a challenge for a while. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we were just talking about it as we were driving down here. I'm like, okay, there's there's roads all around to ride on, but I, I can't figure out what we're going to do. I mean, that's a small problem compared to what many people are facing, of course, but it's just one of those yeah. things that when you're in the middle of emergencies, you're focused on the emergency, and then after the main emergency goes, you start looking at, at what life is going to be like when you're trying to deal with the, uh, the long haul of when these, the damage that these storms can cause, which is happening, uh, of course, all over. The good news is Lake Casitas, our, our big water source and our recreation area. Uh, for those of us who row and so forth and fish and things like that, uh, it got at least, I heard, 11 feet of water. Um, wow. So, and it badly needed it. Uh, I, I got some shots of it yesterday. It's got a lot of debris in it, which is typical for these big storms. They, they just kind of wash everything down into the lake. And then they said at the lake they close it for recreation until some of that debris can sink to bottom. Some of the big logs, there's lots of logs, um, they'll kind of go off to the side where they can be you know, recovered. But that's the good news. The groundwater, you know, might be getting some recharging here. Um, you know, we've been in such a horrible, horrible drought. So the, the, the bright, you know, the bright point of this whole uh, story is that we're getting some, some badly needed water. And it looks like you can still get to the lake on Santa Ana Road um, out of Oakview, but um, mm-hmm. but uh, it's, it's of course, more constricted given that 130 uh, is closed going by, 150, excuse me, is closed going by uh, that main route. So, And I'm just looking at traffic right now, Stephanie, and there are a couple of um, backup points on 33 between uh, Ojai and, and uh, Ventura, but it looks like whatever the morning rush had has abated a little bit so that's that's good news for people that need to commute out of ojai uh to get to jobs stephanie thank you so much great to talk with you as as always and uh we'll hope certainly that the weekend um is is not a threatening period for ojai and surrounding communities Thank you. Same to you and everybody who's listening. Thanks so much, Larry. Thank you. Stephanie O'Neill, independent journalist, former KPCC correspondent. You hear her reports on NPR. It's Air Talk on KPCC. We continue our program with a look at the governor's budget proposal. It's the first uh, take on the budget. There will be a, a revision coming up in May and legislators weigh in, of course. But we're going to talk about the way the governor is trying to deal with a $22.5 billion deficit in California's budget when we come back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org.
It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Coming up later this hour, the Washington Post has taken a fascinating look at federal government data on different categories of jobs and Americans reporting how meaningful those jobs are to them and the degree of stress that they have in doing that work. We'll hear which categories of jobs appear to carry the greatest meaning as well as the least stress, what the reasons for that might be, and we'll be taking listener input. If you have a job that is particularly um, unnotable for being a meaningful job, maybe it's something people think of as as rather mundane, uh, but it has great meaning for you, I'd like to hear why that is. We'll take your calls later this hour. But right now, our focus is on Governor Newsom's budget proposal for the upcoming fiscal year. California facing a projected $22.5 billion deficit, which could rise if the state moves into a recession. Joining us to talk about what the governor is uh, doing with this first swipe of the budget is H.D. Palmer, Deputy Director for External Affairs, California Department of Finance. H.D., good to have you back with us. We talked a little bit about this challenge with the budget deficit. Now we have the governor with his priorities. Um, share with us, first of all, the the overarching philosophy here about using rainy day funds, uh, the, the money that's set aside for reserve. Sure. And good to be back with you, Larry. Uh, The overarching uh, philosophy, at least in terms of the January budget, is that the governor wants to protect those programs that he believes are the priorities of the state and and solve the the estimated $22.5 billion shortfall uh, through a balanced approach using different manners of closing the gap, such as delaying some funding, uh, using different fund sources other than the state's main source, the general fund, and and other ways to close the gap without, at this point, having to resort to t- drawing down or tapping into the reserves that we have, have built up over the years. And there's a reason for that. And the governor talked about it in his press conference yesterday, which is that the issues that have caused the revenue drop that you and I discussed uh, last week are, are still there. We still have volatile conditions, whether it's the inflation rate, whether it's what the Federal Reserve is going to do to potentially increase interest rates further, uh, the all, always uh, out there threat of the volatility of the stock markets. All of those things could still uh, affect our revenues in our economy as we go through the spring. So the governor said, as of Second resort, when we get to our revised budget in May, we'll consider looking at the reserves. Right now, we don't want to use those as a first resort because if, if uh, and we hope this doesn't happen, conditions get worse than we project are right now, we may then have to tap into those reserves as well as uh, use some of the budget closing solutions that he put on the table yesterday. Conversely, uh, if conditions do in fact improve, then we won't have to tap into those reserves. They'll be available and we won't uh, necessarily have to uh, go forward with all of the uh, budget proposals that the governor has put on the table now. But the governor felt that given the volatility in the economy and volatility in revenues that still exist, uh, it was prudent to hold off at this point 
on proposing okay. to tap those reserves until we see what the economy looks like in May. So let me just go through some of the highlights here. Nearly $109 billion allocated for K-12 through education and community colleges. Uh, the governor said that would be the highest per pupil funding total in state history. Also, universal transitional kindergarten to all California four-year-olds would continue. The expansion of free health care to undocumented residents. Um, uh, efforts to deal with homelessness and to launch the care courts would continue and court ordered treatment uh, for Californians with mental illness. That would all continue. Um, but then you've got some environmental cuts, which have already been criticized by various um, advocacy groups, including the cut in uh, the subsidies for uh, electric vehicles. Uh, share with us why the governor is cutting back on that at the same time California has this aggressive mandate date uh, about the sale of electric vehicles. Sure. Um, and I think one of the things to bear in mind when we're talking about specifically on the uh, climate proposals, Larry, is to look at what we've done over the past two years. If you look at the last two budget acts in 2021 and 2022, they allocated $54 billion over five years to advance the state's climate agenda. Uh, this budget proposes to sustain 89% of those investments, about oh, roughly $48 billion, and continue to make priority areas that are, are furthering our, our world-leading advancements in combating climate change. On the on the ZEV issues or the zero-emission vehicles, uh, there are areas where we believe that we may be able to do some uh, fund swaps. We may uh, be able to see the private sector, as the governor talked about, step in and do a lot of work uh, in some of the fueling stations uh, that are going to be uh, part and parcel with the expansion of zero emission vehicles. So uh, there isn't a wholesale pullback in the climate agenda, far from it. Uh, but in this area, we believe that we can at this point pull back somewhat on some of the investments in the near term with the possibility of being able to come in and use other fund sources, for, uh, particularly federal funds, because as the governor noted, if you look at the two federal dollars that have come in through the Infrastructure Act and other acts, California has already received about $48 billion in federal money, uh, not just for climate, but all, all together for infrastructure investments. And and we believe uh, that we have an opportunity to, to draw down an additional Forty plus billion dollars uh, in the near future. Okay. So, one of the things that we think we're going to be able to do is draw down on the federal dollars that are coming in for infrastructure. And certainly, things like the systems that go as ZEVs are are part of infrastructure. Uh, there's also been criticism from uh, legislator Scott Weiner of San Francisco about cuts in public transit. We'll we'll get your thoughts on that. But let me bring into the conversation columnist Dan Walters of the nonprofit state news site Cal Matters. Dan, thank you for joining us. I don't know how many California budgets this makes for you, but many dozens, I know. Um, so your your thoughts about what the governor is attempting to do with this uh, first of his budget proposals? Yeah, well, yeah, my first one was in 1975, and the entire state budget was in the neighborhood of $10 billion. As opposed <laughs> That's so quaint. Well, Isn't that cute? Uh, I think with Everett Dirksen, a billion here, a billion there, there, and pretty soon it adds up to real money. That's right, right yeah. Uh, yeah, the budget is it, the, the game plan that the governor is proposing for the budget is very similar to what the legislative analyst suggested to the legislature a couple of months ago. Not, don't 
go into the reserves, uh, just kind of squeeze things down and see how things pan out. But I think there was a, a, a real ominous warning in that, in that large analyst report, too. He said this, their estimate of the deficit, which is slightly higher, $24 billion, assumes that there's no recession, but that if there was a recession from the Federal Reserve System's tightening down on credit to try to beat inflation, if there was a recession, revenues could decline during what they call the budget window, which is about actually about 18 months rather than 12 months. Their revenues could decline by 30 to $50 billion more, which means the deficit could get, could get the well, you know, $60, 70000000000 billion if we actually get a recession. And that's... That is that's real money. Prudent. Yeah, that is real money. And that's why it is prudent probably to not... Uh, that would be twice as much as the entire... Uh, about twice as much as the entire uh, reserve fund. So you, I think it's, you know, it's smart money to just wait and see a little bit. And so if you're going to do that, then you have to make this these cuts uh, that... Uh, HD described to kind of squeeze through that and see how things go. But I want to point make one more point about this budget. It's another lesson to California about its volatile revenue system. State budget is inordinately dependent on income taxes from a relative handful of high income taxpayers. A handful, really, in a state of forty million, a couple of hundred thousand. And their incomes, in turn, are dependent uh, in great measure on capital gains, on on gains in the stock market and other capital investments. So the California's budget is is really tied to how well a handful of people are doing on their investments. That's a dangerous thing because you make long, you try to make long term spending commitments, but the rel, uh, the revenue volatility just kills that if you get to even the slightest hiccup in the economy. And the governor made, made that point yesterday. In fact, he started out his whole, whole presentation with a chart on the volatility of capital gains. And this, this really cries out again <clears throat> for some reform in the tax system itself so well, we don't have to go through these boom and bust cycles. Former Governor Schwarzenegger established a commission to look at this, and they came out with their recommendations of how to, how to bolster the tax system to diversify it and make it more stable. And, and it was just shot down right out of the gate. So who, who are the stakeholders who don't want to see the system changed? I think some of it is, a lot of it is ideological. If you were to decrease dependence on rich people for your budget, that smacks of, you know, basically helping the rich at the expense of the poor. So there's an ideological opposition to doing what would be required to make the revenue system more stable. That means not taxing the rich people so much as taxing the middle class more, maybe. And so this is why this thing gets shot down all the time. There's just no political appetite for doing that. And yet, as time goes on, the state becomes more and more and more and more dependent on taxing well, a handful of rich people. Some of whom are leaving the state because of that. I understand how you can dumb down the rhetoric on that and say, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to decrease what rich people pay and end up taxing, uh, you know, middle income earners. But... It is, in fact, the people who pay the most because of the swings in revenue aren't the rich people. The people who pay the price are the people who come to rely on 
on programs uh, that benefit them through education, through um, health care, financial services. California has a comparatively generous social safety net. Those are the people most affected by the volatility in the income tax. So I understand you can you can sort of make a simple minded critique about um, we don't want to change the system. But, Dan, I don't understand how the deeper one goes unaddressed. Well, that's, it's, you know, nobody ever said politics is a logical exercise. <laughs> and the logic you express is perfectly true, that the people most in danger of this volatile system are the, essentially the poor, the people who are, rely on government services. But it's just a hard sell. In fact, if anything, it's going in the opposite direction. You know, there was a measure on the ballot in November to raise the income tax on the wealthy higher. There's another measure that's going to be on the 2024 ballot that would raise the income tax on that those same people. And meanwhile, you see, have at least anecdotal evidence that a great number of California, wealthy Californians are departing. They're going places that aren't taxed. I mean, the most obvious example is uh, Musk, Elon Musk, who moved him business and himself to Texas where there is no income tax. There's a whole uh, colony of California expatriates up at uh, Lake Tahoe on the Nevada side of Lake Tahoe who have changed their residences there. I have a number of personal acquaintances who have left the state and gone to know cheaper places. This, you know, how much can you squeeze out of these people before they say, enough is enough, I'm going to leave. Now, we, sh- we don't have to be sympathetic to the rich. The rich can take yeah. care of themselves. But, as you say, the real... There's a practical effect. The volatility yeah. are the poor. Yeah. Dan Walters. Yeah. Dan, political columnist, um, longtime California politics observer with Cal Matters. HD, I want to come back with you uh, and ask you about public transit because Scott Weiner, a Democrat from San Francisco, uh, very critical of, of this. And, you know, we're seeing public transit really struggling. People have not in large numbers come back since the pandemic period um, on many of the lines. Um, they're unhoused people that are 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 using public transit as shelter, but fewer people who are commuting using public transit. You know, what what is the state's role in this? And is is public transit going to be viable long term? Uh, The short answer is yes. Uh, Public transit is going to be viable in the long term. And one of the things uh, that, that, again, the governor pointed to is we are about on the cusp of receiving a uh, unprecedented infusion in federal dollars to invest in infrastructure projects throughout California uh, and and across the country. And we believe that California already has received significant federal dollars uh, for transportation uh, projects, and we believe we're going to receive more. So, uh, again, one of the things that we we propose to do is to – you know, look at those other funding sources, such as federal dollars that are now becoming available. Uh, again, we will we will revisit this pr- proposal when we get to May. And again, if, if conditions uh, warrant and, and, and the economy improves, we may be able to modify some of the, the proposals that the governor put on the table yesterday. Let me let me if I could, Larry, jump in really quick. Yeah, quickly. You want to say something on Dan, about Dan? On, on Dan's point. Yeah. It's, it's not just an ideological issue on the taxes. He and I live through the the Schwarzenegger issue that you talked about a moment ago. And one of the reasons that you know, one of the proposals that was put out to say, let's reduce our reliance on personal income tax. Let's increase the base of sales tax, so-called base broadeners. 
which by definition means you have to tax people who aren't currently taxed. One of the proposals that was in the Schwarzenegger plan was to extend the sales tax to veterinary services. And most people didn't mind if you uh, increase taxes on lawyers or, or, or more wealthy people. But I can tell you from experience when the governor, when Governor Schwarzenegger put on the uh, table an idea to, to extend the sales tax to certain veterinary services, I had no idea how many veterinary or pet publications there were in California until <laughs> Cat Fancy you Magazine, Dog Quarterly called saying, why do you want to tax Fluffy and Fido? What have they done? So I, I use that as yeah. an illustration to say that that's what happens when you try to expand the the base of, of, of the taxation system is some group that's not being taxed right now is going to make their opposition extremely vocal and extremely well known. Thank you both for being with us. I appreciate it. That's H.D. Palmer, who's Deputy Director for External Affairs, California Department of Finance, and Dan Walters of Cal Matters, whose column covers the latest in California governmental issues. It's Air Talk on KPCC. I want to hear from you if you have a job that's not typically considered to be a highly meaningful one that's thought of as just sort of, a, you know, go to work, come home, not providing a lot of, of uh, potential um, benefit. I'd like to hear from you if you're someone who finds great meaning in that work. And maybe that's a surprise to people close to you when you tell them what you do and that you feel a great sense of meaning in it. I'd like to hear from you. We're at 866-893-KPECC. Back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. Not surprisingly, a Washington Post data crushing, uh, crunching of uh, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers shows that people that work in spiritual pursuits, like being pastors and rabbis and work like that, have a great sense of meaning in the work that they do and comparatively low stress. We're not necessarily surprised by that, but there are some categories of work that show high degrees of meaning and comparatively low stress that might well surprise you. We'll get to those momentarily, but I want to hear from you. If you work in a field that people don't necessarily think of as meaningful work, 
as something that would be inspiring for you to get up and to go to work and do your job, but that you do find it meaningful, please share it with us. We'd like to hear about it. 866-893-KPECC. 866-893-5722. You can email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your location and first name. With me from the Washington Post is Department of Data columnist Andrew Van Dam, who has crunched these federal numbers. Andrew, thanks so much for being with us. Well, geez, thanks for having me. This is so uh, so interesting. So share with us uh, just briefly, how do you crunch this federal data? Right. So every year, the federal government asks about 25,000 Americans to fill out time diaries, what they were doing every minute of every day from, you know, driving to work to playing table tennis. And uh, about 10,000 people or so, give or take, uh, reply to these surveys. They give extremely detailed data on what they were doing in the past day. And for a couple of uh, years in the past decade, the government has actually asked, how did you feel while you were doing those activities? So we can start looking at how happy, how meaningful, how stressful certain activities were. And of course, our biggest activity is working. So that's one thing we immediately looked at but you can also you know look at how you felt while you were playing with your grandkids <laughs> and when we look at at some of these professions i i was surprised by how high agriculture logging and forestry is that was a big uh, takeaway for me the meaningfulness of the work um was 5.2 out of 6 blowing past other sectors of of jobs happiness was also high at 4.4 and the stress was one of the very lowest 1.9 out of 6 what is it about agriculture logging and forestry that that provides that because i think of farming for example being very stressful work you're at the mercy of the weather um that there's you know the the boom bust nature of farming is pretty intense so how do you how do you make sense of this right that that is absolutely true and i was surprised by this at first too uh, it, it, it for actually a long time it flung it flummoxed me so till I started making calls, looking deeper in the numbers, and realizing that you know what we're looking at here is just how you feel while you're doing your main job, not how do you feel after you get off the job okay. and start trying to pay the bills or anything like that. It's how do you feel while you're out there in the forest, while you're in the field, that kind of thing. All and right, that so. makes me realize something else. Yeah, that really the biggest driver of this of your happiness at work is often context. It's what you're doing and where you're doing it, not necessarily what your job is specifically. And the context of being a logger or the context of being a farmer is outdoors. It's physical activity. And we know from other happiness research that people are often extremely happy, you know, when you're outdoors, whether it be recreation or work or um, while you're doing physical activity, typically exercise. Well, and, and the other thing with logging, obviously loggers, they're working in beautiful environments, these spectacular forests, but it's extremely dangerous work. I think it's, you know, one of the top categories for injuries on the job and and it's grueling. And as as uh, lumberjacks get older, it can be, you know, much more difficult dealing with the aches and pains and physical demands. Nonetheless, it, the work clearly makes people doing it happy. 
Right. And I think that comes down to the day-to-day thing because logging, yes, it's one of the three most dangerous jobs on the planet, along with fishing and roofing, I believe. Uh, but um, we're asking how they're feeling while they're doing the job day-to-day. We're not asking them to step back and reflect on the odds of getting injured during your career. So unless the government happened to reach out to this poor logger on the day when he cut off a finger with a chainsaw or she, yeah. Um, then they're, to, they're going to be reporting based on the quotidian experience of the job, the day-to-day grind, which for a forester, for a logger, means you're out there in the forest. We're talking with the Washington Post Department of Data columnist Andrew Van Dam, and I encourage you to, to go see the work he's done. We have a link to it on our AirTalk page at kpcc.org. It's absolutely fascinating, and we're just kind of scratching the surface of it. And I'd love to hear from listeners doing jobs that others might consider mundane or even uh, undesirable desirable jobs, but that give you meaning. We're at 866-893-KPECC. DJ in Arcadia said, I'm a crossing guard in the San Gabriel area. I love it. It doesn't pay much. I have to be there at 715 in the morning, but the kids make it all worthwhile. DJ, thank you so much. 866-893-KPECC or email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your location and first name. We'll be back in a minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us as we're talking about jobs that might not seem to be deeply meaningful and rewarding, but are to the people who do that work. We're talking with the Washington Post Department of Data columnist Andrew Van Dam, who's crunched these federal numbers. One of the things I found surprising is is how much meaning and relatively low stress of people that are, are professional caregivers. It's actually a higher degree of stress, maybe not surprisingly, for people doing it for family members because it's not your job. You don't have that level of detachment, but I was very impressed to see those who do caregiving as their job for non-family members show quite a high satisfaction level in that. Adam in Victorville says, I do non-emergency medical transportation, and, and if it wasn't for us during the pandemic, I don't know how many people would get around. We don't get benefits, but I still find it so rewarding. It gives some of the most vulnerable one less Thing to think about. Thank you so much. Let's uh, talk with uh, Tex in Long Beach. Good to have you with us. What kind of work do you do, and and to what extent does it give you meaning? I'm a truck driver. I've been driving trucks for a little over ten years, eleven years now, and I love being a part of the process. I love being a part of people getting their food, getting their products, getting uh, the things that they need. Um, I enjoy being a part of a wider industry. For every truck that you see, there are thousands of people that have made that happen from manufacturers, mechanics, customer service, uh, the drivers themselves, and the people that make the components of the trucks that make them work and go. Tex, you should be a, a spokesman for the trucking industry. That was beautiful. That was, and true. Uh, yes, that's a great point. So does that help you when you're dealing with rude and and dangerous drivers and, uh, and all the stresses that I know come with being a professional driver? 
It does. It does because the one thing about it is you're driving not just for yourself but for someone else as well. So, and I know that a lot of people don't understand what's going on with the truck. They don't know how heavy you are. They don't know what it takes to make you stop, but I do. So therefore I try to get ahead of the curve and not that they don't aggravate me, but we're talking about maybe 30 seconds of aggravation and eight hours of sitting in my truck, listening to you uh, on a daily basis and just really having a peace of mind going forward. And so it keeps me pretty calm. Tex, thank you so much. And a wonderful reminder for us to be thinking about all the trucks that are on our, our local roads, about the important service they're providing for all of us in doing it. Tex, thank you very much. Wonderful to have you with us. Uh, let's talk with Kevin in Santa Monica. Kevin, what's the work you do and how does it give you meaning? Uh, so the work I do is with uh, people who are experiencing homelessness or those who are looking for work. Uh, we're a current organization that helps people find jobs. Uh, so we match people either with no experience or experience with justice involvement for people who have been in prison, uh, and we help them find jobs based on their experience. It, find, it helps me find meaning because L.A. obviously has a major homelessness crisis, crisis and we are kind of mitigating that by the work that we do here in our office. Yeah, I'm not surprised. The work we do valuable because we are in Santa Monica and it's kind of a high dollar area, but um, we're mitigating homelessness one by one and helping people find self-sufficiency. Kevin, that's terrific. um, I'm not surprised you find that deeply meaningful because I can't imagine how good it feels when you have a client who you've helped get a job who's come through such difficult circumstances in one's life and and then the job being such an essential component to turning it around. Kevin, thank you. I appreciate it very much. Let me share some others. Uh, Felicia in South Pasadena says, I work in retail sales. I work with a lot of older ladies who are widowed and retired. They come to me like therapy. It's a nice way to get instant gratification making someone's day. Felicia, thank you. That's wonderful to hear about. Kathy in Highland Park says, I'm a dog walker. It's meaningful to the dog and the owner. It was an essential service during COVID, so we were allowed to go outside while others were quarantined. Uh, Nadia in Capistrano Beach says, I self-travel for a living. I'm a travel advisor. It's a really rewarding job because the people you help Help in situations like deaths in the family or anniversaries, celebrations, what you see on their face. Nadia, thank you so much. And Dan in Anaheim uh, says, I generate electricity for customers and people don't really understand the value. The Department of Energy approves it and incentivizes it. So people think it's not a big deal, but I find it very meaningful because of the help it provides in the environment. Thank you for those. Uh, uh, Andrew, it's wonderful to hear all these things that people are doing that others might not think of as highly rewarding, but are are deeply rewarding to the people doing them. Absolutely. And it's some people that are finding a sort of um, component of happiness in their job that others might not see. Like we are hearing a lot of uh, spiritual component people are seeing or um, caring for others or, something that you might hear in a volunteer activity. A lot of the jobs are ones that are um, giving something like that, or even finding uh, 
socializing or um, interpersonal interaction as a part of an everyday job, which, of course, is something that does bring meaning to a lot of people. Well, yeah, I have to say the fact I work with such a group of curious, intelligent and warm people, it's I look forward to being part of a team like that every day. And it's a real part of what, for me, uh, gives gives my job meaning. And I, I think that's true for a lot of people at KPCC. Aaron in Santa Monica said, I've been working as a server for 20 years all over Los Angeles. I don't know about low stress, but there are times I do find great meaning in my job, especially nowadays. Going out can be quite pricey, so it's important to me that they have a good time. People go out to celebrate such special and meaningful occasions like birthdays and anniversaries. It means a lot to me when the party leaves have Having had such a great experience, knowing that I was a part of a special memory in their lives. Aaron, that's beautiful. Thank you. And Liz in Monrovia tweets at AirTalk, I was a receptionist and was the first point of contact. I genuinely felt happy at the end of the day for helping people with basic information. It also helped me break out of my shell since I was talking to people all day. Liz, thank you so much. And our thanks to Washington Post Department of Data columnist Andrew Van Dam. It's AirTalk on KPEC. See much to come in our second hour, including a look at tipping. Speaking of servers. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us and to be able to share some good news with you. Tickets are going on sale in less than two hours for our 21st Annual Film Week Academy Awards preview. Tickets will be on sale and will be at a brand new venue just across the street from where we've spent the last few years with our Film Week preview. We are going to be at the historic Orpheum Theater on Broadway in downtown Los Angeles, right there in the heart of the historic theater district. The Orpheum Theater and even bigger venue for our Film Week Academy Awards preview. We look forward to seeing you there. The event will be Sunday afternoon, March 5th. You'll want to get your tickets now. We want to see a big turnout for our annual event. We get all of our critics up on stage and they take us through all of the films of 2022. The top movies in their view, what they think is likely to win, and the films that they think should be recognized by the Academy. Again, 
and the date of our Film Week Academy Awards preview 21st annual event, the Orpheum Theater, downtown Los Angeles, Sunday, March 5th, afternoon event. Tickets are available at kpcc.org slash events. That's kpcc.org slash events. Tickets go on sale at noon today. Make sure that you get yours and join us at the Orpheum in just a couple of months. Well, we turn our attention now to immigration and asylum here in the United States, where, of course, there had been deep concern about what's happening along the U.S.-Mexico border. Last week, President Biden said the U.S. would immediately begin turning away Cubans, Haitians, and Nicaraguans who crossed the border from Mexico illegally. The Biden administration is using Title 42, a federal law that allows authorities the power to deny entry of people uh, that could um, uh, spread a communicable disease. Under former President Trump, Title 42 was put into effect as a way of turning people away at the border during the pandemic. Title 42 is also in place for Venezuelans attempting to enter the U.S. since October 2022. That's led to a dramatic drop in Venezuelans coming to the southern border. We're going to talk about where things stand with the U.S. Supreme Court consideration of Title 42 and what's happening for those attempting to gain asylum in the United States. Joining us is Drexel University Professor of Law, Anil Calhan. Uh, Professor Calhan, thank you very much for being with us. First of all, where do we stand on the legality of Title 42 being used even after we're past the height of the pandemic? Larry, thank you for having me. So the the legality questions are somewhat complicated in the sense that um, there's there's two parallel tracks of litigation going on. And as you mentioned, the Supreme Court. um, So so on, on the one hand, the Biden administration, after really dragging its heels to end Title 42, uh, and using it and in some ways extending it in April of 2022, did try try to end its use altogether. Um, and when they did so, a number of Republican attorneys general went to court to say that they, they couldn't do that, that they had to leave in place the Trump administration's initiatives, um, which the same uh, group of attorneys general has done on a number of immigration policies from the Trump era. Then separately, you had a lawsuit brought by immigrants rights advocates challenging um, the legality of Title 42 and a district court judge in Washington uh, uh, agreed with those advocates that the policy, the underlying policy itself was unlawful. Um, that is the order that the Supreme Court has now blocked. So they've agreed to hear this case. But in the meantime, um, the, the, the lawsuit by the Republican states, uh, attorneys general has, has prevented the, the Biden administration from ending this policy. So it remains in place. The Supreme Court might or might not 
ever rule that the policy is legal. They might agree that it's illegal, but in the meantime, the Biden administration can't end it. Well, we had the um, highly unusual dissent uh, jointly issued by Justices Gorsuch and Brown Jackson um, in in which they essentially said um, that we understand that there's a, a practical problem with ending Title 42, but it's not the court's job to solve that problem along the border by upholding something that wasn't really intended for this specific purpose and and so I wonder how this splits um, the conservatives among the justices as well because they do have this practical consideration which the Biden administration is of course highly conscious of they're concerned what happens post title 42 at the border because they have the mechanism now they wouldn't if it's rescinded and um, you've got people for whom you know they're deeply concerned about the limbo in which those seeking refugees find themselves so how how does the the court sort of navigate the practical versus the specific legal issues. Yeah, you know, the, the, the dissent by Justice Gorsuch was a remarkable one. I think his, his exact words were that this is not, or to paraphrase, is that this was not, this is not, the border crisis is not a public health crisis, right? It may be that there's, a, there's that we don't take a view on what the right response is at the border, but this mechanism is a public health measure um, Title 42. And I think it, it just to step back, to, I think it's useful to, to go back to 2020 when the Trump administration instituted this measure to sort of really get at some of what you're saying. So when, when the Trump administration initiated the use of Title 42, um, and Title 42, just to sort of to explain what it does, it, it authorizes public health officials to suspend the introduction of persons or goods into the United States when there is a communicable disease in a foreign country that poses a serious danger, right? So, of course, COVID poses a serious danger, um, but it's not meant to be, when when this law was passed in 1893, um, it was initially framed as an immigration measure to allow suspension of immigration. Um, When it ultimately passed, there were senators um, who were concerned that this was somewhat pretextual and said, well, we don't want this to be um, framed in terms of immigration because, of course, if people who are non-immigrants who are U.S. citizens are coming to the United States or people who that they might as well also um, raise public health concerns. So this law was passed and it was never actually used for 130 years. So fast forward to 2020, you know, it wasn't really the CDC that initiated its use. It was the immigration officials um, who saw an opportunity uh, to, to sort of see this as a way to implement restrictions on asylum that they had already been trying to do long before COVID. And in fact, there was some reporting that Stephen Miller, the White House um you know, uh, the the policy advisor on immigration had been looking for pre-COVID opportunities to use this authority. Um, um, so while they restricted people who were coming from uh, Mexico by land and Canada by land without documents um, and used this to ex- expel them, other people were freely traveling, right? And, and um, so when the Biden administration came to office, uh, it, it, unlike some of the other Trump era policies, it kept this policy in place, I think really in part for what you're saying. There's sort of a practical uh, seen as a practical way to deal with a border crisis. 
Um, and so it really, and in the meantime, a number of politicians, both Republican and Democratic, came out in support of its views. And I think that the unfortunate thing is that when the Biden administration then ultimately decided this is something we want to end, they made their lives a little bit more difficult for themselves because they had effectively validated its use in the meantime. So, you know, the irony of Title 42 is that nobody really thinks of this as a public health measure. Yeah. Not at the beginning and certainly not now. Of course, opponents don't. They've always claimed that it's pretextual. But even supporters of the use of Title 42 really understand this as an immigration measure, right? Many of them have resisted other public health measures, such as the mask and vaccine mandates. Um, back in 2020, in fact, the immigration agency, um, there were calls to reduce detention populations for public health reasons, and, and the, the immigration officials in the Trump administration resisted that, even as they were yeah. using well, Title 42. Yeah, Professor Callan, uh, so I, I wanted to ask about what was announced last week, where now, for those seeking asylum, they're supposed to do it in the country where they currently reside, not come to the U.S.-Mexico border to do that. So how does how does that then change this process? So the, what, there, there are multiple things in the Biden administration's announcement from last week. And so what their ultimate goal really seems to be is to reduce the incentives and reduce the number of people who are crossing at the border itself, right? So they created these legal pathways for people to apply if they have a, a sponsor who can provide financial support in the United States. There will, uh, with, a, with a numerical cap, allowing and with some disqualifying criteria, allowing people um, from uh, Nicaragua, Cuba, and Haiti to apply uh, for parole, which is a mechanism for people to enter for a limited period of time. It's not a substitute for asylum. I think that's the important thing to recognize. Asylum, people have the right to apply for asylum under U.S. and international law um, and the right not to be returned to places where they may seek persecution. So these legal pathways that are created, and you know, there's precedent in um, what the administration did for Venezuelans and for people from Ukraine, and they're laudable. Um, there are going to be a lot of people who can't, either won't qualify, won't have a sponsor, who um, uh, can't really afford to do their circumstances to stay and will feel compelled to leave. Um, and if they make their way to the United States, I mean, obviously most people will prefer to apply legally and come through legal avenues. But if they're forced to come unlawfully, then you have Title 42 waiting there and um, the potential expanded of other mechanisms to prevent them from applying for asylum. Um, so it is a sort of a, the policies they're initiating is trying to sort of do both of these things that, you know, create legal pathways um, while simultaneously lowering the, lowering the hammer more aggressively on people who yeah. do make their way. To the United States. Well, and I thought I heard the president say that you'd be disqualified if you didn't apply in your own country and you try to come into the U.S., uh, um, present yourself at the border, that that was disqualifying. Was, did I hear that correctly? Well, what they did is they announced that if you come through another country and don't apply in that third country, the so-called the so transit ban, um, then you will be ineligible. Um, and... Uh, you know, that's a policy that was initially um, instituted under the Trump administration and that the president, President Biden, had previously criticized. Um, 
And, you know, it, it, there are a number, I mean, it's, there's no question that the dealing with the border is a very challenging, challenging policy problem. Um, but I think the unfortunate piece of this, and including the measure that you've identified, um, is that it really does reinforce um, some significant portions of how the Trump administration restricted access to asylum right. for people, which, again, is a legal right under U.S. law and international law. We'll continue our conversation on Title 42 and the methods by which people coming originally from Venezuela through other countries or originally from those from those other countries, uh, how they go through the process of seeking the asylum status here in the United States. We're talking with Drexel University law professor Anil Calhan. We'll soon be talking with the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights Director of Legal Services, Carla Navarrete, and we'll be talking with Pomona College professor Miguel Tinker Salas, who'll be sharing with us a bit of the history behind immigration to the U.S. and how Title 42 and the current procedures fit into that history. It's Air Talk on KPCC. We'll be back in just one minute. It's Air Talk, and if you have questions for our guests, we're at 866 893 KPCC. Coming up later this hour, tipping and the challenges it can present. Technology, of course, has changed with so many restaurants adopting uh, the use of devices where there are suggested percentages of tips, and you're doing it often in view of the server who's right there holding the device. Uh, so that changes the whole process of tipping. We're going to ask listeners uh, how their tipping might have changed, either through the pandemic or as the result of, of it being a less private process with suggested levels of tipping. That's all coming up later this hour. But right now, we talk about the changes that President Biden announced last week on U.S. Uh, immigration policy. The president saying that there is a legal path for 30,000 people a month to be able to uh, be provided haven in the United States. This even with Title 42 continuing to uh, make that process more difficult for people who want to come to the United States. With us is Carla Navarrete, Director of Legal Services for CHURLA, the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights of Los Angeles. Carla, thank you very much for, for being with us. First of all, share with us the, the people that CHURLA are working with. Are Where are most of the individuals coming from and, and what are the most common issues you're trying to resolve for them? Thank you so much for having me, Larry. Yes, we are definitely helping with um, folks that are coming in and trying to offer um, and build the support that they need as they arrive into the United States with different legal and humanitarian needs. Um, It's a program that we're trying to work with uh, local and state authorities to be able to provide um, aid. And and what are some of the biggest um, challenges that you face in helping people through the process? Well, the so the third legal aspect, people are coming in under different terms at the border once they are able to successfully get through Title 42. 
So there are definitely legal challenges that they're not um, all being accepted in the same manner. They're being accepted under different uh, legal terms and requirements and being placed into their deportation hearings to be able to uh, then, you know, set their asylum claim forward. So the challenge is definitely placing them providing them legal representation so that they can defend their claims since they traveled so long and waited um, in so many different um, conditions to get into the United States. And what's the degree of understanding of, of U.S. asylum law of those coming? I mean, it's such, it's such a complicated area. You know, most Americans couldn't describe it. Do those who come to the U.S., have they, have they studied it? Are they pretty knowledgeable about it? Or is much of what you're doing helping them understand the system? Well, the basic understanding is that people are leaving for a reason, um, for a prosecution, um, running for their lives, running to um, just be in a safer place. So they understand that concept for sure. But then all the technicalities of when and to file, how to file, and what qualifies you into asylum, which is the protected categories, and then the PSG, the particular social groups, that's when it gets complicated and way over their head. And that is why we, you know, have to try to connect them to legal counsel because otherwise they really have no chance of really moving their cases forward. And Carla, um, for those coming from Venezuela, what are the biggest drivers in, in that movement? Can you repeat the question? Yeah, what are the biggest drivers for people out of Venezuela coming to the United States? Rivals, you said? Drivers. What are the biggest things oh, that are drivers. pushing them oh, out of Venezuela? You, yeah. The push factors. Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, Venezuela's been in, in a different uh, chaos and different uh, political situations. Um, most people just simply cannot uh, live there anymore. Uh, yeah. Some of them are tied to economic uh, refuge, but given the, the the political climate in the country, right? So they, they become hungry because uh, the government in that country does not allow them to do A, B, C, and D. So it's a mix of both political and economic needs, right, um, protections. And that is what's driving uh, entire families through the Darien to come over here into the U.S. and, and file their claims. And does uh, does that qualify them for being given asylum in the United States if if it's largely economic reasons? No, I mean I think everybody knows that there's a huge economic pull into the United States, but most people have a reason as to why they can no longer make a living in their own country, and it's based on some type of abuse or prosecution. So um, it's it could be a group in their country that does not allow them to work anymore, right? It could be a group that exhorts them, or it could be like a, a political party or government that no longer allows them to engage in, you know, their trade or whatnot. That then creates this uh, kind of like dual intent or reason for traveling. And so when you're working with people who are coming from Venezuela, they're perhaps coming through another country, um, what what are some of the things that you counsel them about? And, and if it's largely economic reasons they're coming, you know, what do you tell them in a case like that where they may not qualify for being given asylum? Yeah, I mean, I think different folks take it like 
in different manners. Like, well, I'm just here to, I'm, I'm realistically to do what I can do in the time that I'm here and kind of like move forward. But most folks are here to stay because they just cannot return due to some prosecution in the country. So what we advise them is um, very important asylum uh, deadlines, for example, that people have to submit their asylum application within a year of entering, uh, that people have to go to their court hearings or they'll be deported, that people have to abide by different um, ICE um, check-in requests and and supervision as requested, and that those that are eligible should apply for a work permit and such um, information that they need to be able to navigate the complicated immigration laws. We're talking with Carla Navarrete, Director of Legal Services for CHIRLA, also with us from Pomona College, Professor of Latin American History and Chicano, Chicana, and Latino, Latina Studies, Miguel Tinker Salas. Professor Salas, thank you very much for, for joining us. So where are we at, um, particularly with uh, those fleeing Venezuela, compared to historically where we've been on, on immigration and refugee status here? Good morning. Uh, Venezuela is a very interesting issue because conditions actually are not as bad today as they have been in the last decade. So what we're seeing in terms of the immigrants, we're seeing two different parallel paths. One is many immigrants who have left Venezuela previously and gone to Ecuador, Peru, Chile, uh, Ecuador, and other countries, and have faced um, xenophobia, have faced the persecution, and have then redirected their route going north uh, towards uh, the United States. And another group that is a younger generation um, who feel that their life opportunities and expectancies in Venezuela are not as great and therefore are also joining in that process. Let me underscore, however, that many of them uh, um, have to have some resources because the trail from Venezuela through Colombia, through the Darien Straits, through all of Central America, through Mexico um, is is not only arduous, but also costly. Um, And the route has been established earlier by Haitian who went through on the same exact route and by Cubans who went on the same exact route as well. So that there are several factors compelling Venezuelans to immigrate. One is the political context in the country um, and the other is the uh, conditions that they have faced in other countries in South America. I was watching a CBS News interview along the border on the Mexican side and there was a small group of of Venezuelan men who were awaiting word on on Title 42. This was before the uh, Supreme Court um, allowed 42 to continue. And one of the men was asked, well, you know, what do you think is going to happen if 42 was struck down? And he said, well, I, I think you're going to see Venezuela just, you know, coming to the border, essentially that it would be a mass exodus. Now, that might have been hyperbole, but um, your thoughts on on to what extent Venezuelans would want to come to the United States, uh, relocate here, if the yeah. avenue was open. I think it would be hyperbole. I don't, I don't think that most, most people don't want to leave their countries. Leaving their countries is not something that they desire or aspire to. Most people, whether they're Central Americans, Cubans, Haitians, Venezuelans, want to remain in their country, and the great majority will. Um, so I don't think that we're going to see just simply this notion of a, an invasion has been projected by many conservatives that Latin America is going to invade the U.S. And this is a long-term discourse that goes back to Samuel Huntington and the Hispanic Challenge. It goes back to 
William Colby, the CIA director, saying that the Latin Americans were going to invade the U.S. It wasn't true in the 70s and 80s, and it's not true today. Um, obviously, there is very important conditions in Latin America that are causing this migration. The reduction of poverty we saw in Latin America in the early 2000s and 2010s has been pushed back beginning in 2017 and then worsened tremendously by the pandemic, affecting countries like Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Haiti. But it also affects other countries. The elephant in the room is Mexico. The numbers of Mexicans coming into the U.S. has continued to tickward upwards in the last few few years. So it's, it's a much broader context of a Latin American diaspora and not just the Haitian, Venezuelan, Cuban, uh, or uh, um, Nicaraguan diaspora. Uh, Professor, do you, do you have a sense of where the 30000 a month um, that the president said uh, would be the limit uh, stacks up to compared with how many people are actually applying? Eric in Pomona tweeted that that question to us, probably your neighbor there in Pomona. Um, do, you, do you know how that 30000 compares? Well, but it flips, it flips the issue because if you go back to Emma Lazarus who said, give us your huddled masses yearning to be free, give us your tired, your poor. Now we're saying you have to have a, a valid passport. You have to have a sponsor in the U.S. You have to have some resources. So we're basically privileging a segment of the society that has access to those resources and can actually come north. Um, that's the, the irony of this issue. Uh, so you're allowing 30,000. Initially, it was 30,000 Venezuelans. And now it's 30,000, including Haitians, Nicaraguans, Cubans, uh, and uh, uh, um, Venezuelans. So again, it flips the issue on its head. Um, they're going to be people who have access to resources, have access to sponsors, have family in the U.S. already. Um, so it, it under, undermines the whole notion of uh, send us your poor, your tired, your humble well, masses. But, but doesn't uh, U.S. policy, because of the need for sponsorship and things like that, weight toward those of having somewhat more means anyway was isn't that pre-existing it is pre-existing, but the issue that, that won't address the issue at the border. My point here is that the issue at the border has much deeper roots into Latin America. Um, Latin America is only expected to grow this year 1.4%. Um, the pandemic took a, a multi-dimensional impact on the society, on the culture, on the economy, on education, on social services. So it's affecting the entire region. That's why I said that the issue we're dealing with is Venezuelans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, uh, and Cubans, but we're not dealing with Mexicans. We're not dealing with Salvadorians, Hondurans. Um, and other Central Americans. So I think that we need a more holistic approach. And what's really missing here is comprehensive immigration reform. Until we get comprehensive immigration reform, we're going to be dealing with this issue piecemeal. Um, for Nicaraguans today, Venezuelans tomorrow, Haitians today, uh, Cubans tomorrow, um, when do we deal with comprehensive immigration? Thank you so much, Professor Salas. Very good to have you with us today. That's from Pomona College, Professor of Latin American History and Chicano Chicana and Latino Latina Studies, Miguel Tinker Salas. Our thanks to Carla Navarrete of the Coalition for Humane Immigrant Rights of Los Angeles, where she directs legal services, and uh, Anil Calhan, who is Professor of Law at Drexel University. Coming up on Air Talk, I want to hear from you how your tipping practices has changed in the past few years. Now, with digital devices at many restaurants where you're tipping often in front of uh, the person uh, who serves you with a suggested tip right in front of you. Uh, might be different levels. Nonetheless, you're doing it as a more public act. Has that had any effect on what you tip? And if you're someone who works in wait staff, I'd be interested in hearing 
how you've seen tipping change among your customers. 866-893-KPECC. That's 866-893-5722. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. What tipping is like today? It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this, whether you are a professional member of waitstaff and you've seen how your customers have changed their tipping patterns, or for those of us that are customers, how has your tipping changed with the introduction of devices presented by your waiter who... Um, then, you know, might be right there when you're choosing uh, from among several suggested percentages of tipping. 866-893-KPECC. Also, do you tip differently now as a result of all the changes that we've seen in the service industry as a result of the pandemic? 866-893-5722. With me from a BI Norwegian Business School, Assistant Professor of Marketing, Nathan Warren, who has heavily studied this issue. Professor Warren, good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on, Larry. So Good to uh, be here. share with us um, what we've seen in the way of shifting consumer behavior about tipping. Has it changed over the past few years? Yeah, I think the biggest change that we've seen is just that people are tipping more frequently than they ever were before. And, and so your introduction, you were referring to uh, waitstaff in restaurants, which is where I got my start as a uh, working in the restaurant industry. Um, but what we've seen is that tipping is now occurring in all of these places where uh, tipping might have seemed somewhat optional before or tipping might have been not even part of the consideration before. And now uh, largely these digital point of sale screens are prompting customers for tips um, and, and customers just don't quite know. There's no script for it. There's yeah. no norm for it. So nobody really knows what they should be doing. Well, there are times there'll be there'll, uh, something that'll ask if you want a tip, and you don't even understand, well, for who would be the employee that would be getting this? I mean, it's easy at a, at a restaurant or uh, you're in a coffee place. You know, the tip goes to the staff, including the barista. But, but there are other times where, you know, people will ask about a tip, and it just seems odd. And do we know why this is happening? Yeah, uh, so I, I think there was a few scandals a couple years ago with some of these digital apps that were hiring gig workers, and it turns out that they were actually pilfering quite a number of the tips and not giving them to the workers. Uh, so that's kind of a, a close-to-home example, um, but a more kind of one that's been really confusing me that I haven't wrapped my head around is a number of donation platforms have started asking people for tips. So if I'm going online and, you know, NPR doesn't do this, but if I go on to NPR and say, I want to give you a donation, I say, hey, I'll give you $15 a month. And I click go. And then you ask me for a tip afterwards. <laughs> I'm first nice. baffled with what is the tip for? I just gave you a bunch of money. And then my next question is, where does this tip go? Um, and so that's just this baffling practice. I've seen it on a few political donation campaigns. And a number of fundraising platforms have started to introduce tipping also. 
um, to varying degrees of kind of transparency about where those tips go. Ruth in Long Beach says, I've become a much more generous tipper. I've learned to always pay in cash because a lot of restaurants don't give the tip to the waiter directly. My minimum tip is $5. I give 25 to 30%. People work so hard for those tips. Ruth, thank you very much. Um, William in Garden Grove says, I went to a restaurant and asked the waitress about tips, and she said, we don't get the tips anyway. That's terrible. Uh, William, thank you for, for sharing that. Peter in Pasadena says, I was a waiter for five years. TIP uh, is an acronym uh, for to ensure proper service. At sit-down restaurants, we need to be able to tip independently at the beginning because then it can influence the server's service. I think that's the key. Peter, thank you very much. I I don't see that catching on, but that's an interesting thought. Let's talk with Adam in Atwater Village, Los Angeles. Adam, uh, please share with us your thoughts about tipping today. Adam, are you there? I am, and good morning. Good morning. Yeah, please share with us uh, your thoughts about tipping. You you know, tipping has obviously changed a lot, and I'm a little bit older today, but back in the when I was a teenager in, the, in my early 20s, I worked at the Coffee Bean and Tea Leaf and received tips. And it was um, an unexpected and very welcome surprise uh, coming from working in a bike shop where they didn't really do tipping. <laughs> yeah. And so that's carried with me through my life where I've, I valued being able to give tips to people. Um, and I've always tried to drop money into this little tip jar at the side of everywhere I go and, and tip well at restaurants. But the digital systems, they feel a little bit impersonal. And oftentimes in the most recent years, I felt that they are that um, they've put like predetermined percentages that are maybe higher or lower than what I might like. So I typically carry around a couple of $2 bills in my pocket and drop those into the tip jar and go about my merry way. Adam, I appreciate it. Yeah, I I agree with you about it feeling less personal. I, I don't think it, it uh, affects how much I actually tip. But Professor Warren, I do think that to me, something is lost, but it's like so many things. You're getting a degree of convenience, particularly for stressed wait staff that don't have the degree of help that they used to. So I'm sympathetic to that. And the digital device, I'm sure, helps them save time um, and save a trip. Um, but it is it does feel less personal. What do you think? I, I completely agree. I think that there's definitely two things we need to consider. One is the employees that are working in these places are they are not being particularly well paid they're not being treated well particularly during covid um and so there's a whole need to really address the needs of these service workers and i think that the increased tips that we're getting through these systems is kind of a bad way to address an underlying problem that's really not being otherwise looked at um But the other piece on the customer side is that we keep almost forcing customers, tricking them into it, guilting them into paying tips that they don't want to give or that they used to feel good about. Right. The gentleman who just called, he said he enjoyed tipping. Yeah. But a lot of times in these new digital tipping things, people aren't enjoying it as much. It's no longer feels like a choice. It no longer feels generous and altruistic. It just feels like you've been forced and tricked into it, and it just makes the whole experience unpleasant. What does research say about the 
privacy or public nature of tipping, you know, when when others have access, you know, beyond the restaurant or server to see how much you've tipped, how does that affect what people give? Yeah, so we're I'm actually working on that research right now. Um, and so there's not a clear answer to that question, right? We don't know uh, exactly what observation during tipping is going to do to tip percentages. There's some indications that when an employee watches a customer select a tip, the customer will tip more. Other people have shown that maybe if I'm, I've got a, a business person, if I'm going out to a business lunch or I'm on a date, I might try to impress the person I'm with by tipping more. Um, my research has been showing that customers really dislike it when employees watch them. So it gives you this kind of weird divergence where people tip more, but then are very dissatisfied with the overall service encounter. And I think that is kind of emblematic of a lot of the changes we've seen in tipping. 866-893-KPECC. Bob in Irvine says, I'll leave a generous tip for good service at an expensive restaurant. I'll buy hamburgers at a cheap drive through where no tip is expected. But I will no longer go to middle price sit-down restaurants, pay $20 for a sandwich and drink, and be expected to leave a 25% tip on top of that. Wage inflation is the problem. Ultimately, it will hurt workers. That's Bob in Irvine. Let's talk with Harrison Woodland Hills. I understand uh, you're a professional driver for Uber and Lyft. What's your experience with tips? Well, my experience with tips from five years ago until now is that I get tipped maybe 1% of the time. And I've driven over 10,000 people and I've been tipped 1% of the time. That includes Starbucks employees I take home. That includes waitresses I take home. That includes strippers I take home, and none of them will tip the Uber driver. So as I hear that there is now an increase in people tipping, it is not trickling down to Uber drivers. And unlike all those other service employees, I'm having to pay to maintain my vehicle on top of all of it. I've had people vomit in my car that do not tip me. Well, and they may be so out of it, they don't even think of it. But Harris, you know, it's a little surprising now that there is the ability to tip in app, which makes it more convenient for people that are that are calling Uber. But you're saying people don't even take advantage of of that convenience. Well, it's buried in the app. It is not right in your face like at Starbucks. And it hasn't changed anything. So it just mystifies me how Uber drivers are not in the mix of other service workers. Yeah, Harris, okay, thank you. You know, it's funny because it, it seems to me when I use uh, Uber that uh, at the end of the drive, there's a pop-up about, you know, your rating and tipping of the driver. So I'm surprised. I'm uh, that's so unfortunate about the the incredibly low uh, rate of tipping of, of people you're driving. That's Harrison Woodland Hills. And ironic as he's saying all these people who rely on tips for their income, don't tip him. 866-893-KPECC or you can email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Ambu in Newport Beach says, I don't mind tipping, but I don't like the pressure of being compelled to tip. If it's well-deserved, I want to tip. If it's not deserved, I get resentful. That's Ambu in Newport Beach. Um, Let's see, who else do we have? Um, 
uh, Brizana in Pasadena as an ex-waiter. Service has changed entirely. I find it insulting when the receipt has the percent suggestions. I want a tip, but sometimes feel obligated even when it's bad service. So I just do 15% usually. That's Brizana in Pasadena. 866-893-KPECC. I want to hear from you, whether you're a professional who relies on tips or simply the customer. How is your tipping process and the level of your tips changed in recent years? 866-893-KPECC. You can also email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Look forward to your calls in just one minute. Coming up on NPR's Here and Now, in just a few minutes, a new study of Utah's Great Salt Lake finds the lake will disappear in five years if water consumption isn't cut almost in half over the next two years so water can flow back into the lake. It's Here and Now, just minutes away from NPR here on KPECC. Right now, we're talking about tipping and with us from BI Norwegian Business School Assistant Professor of Marketing and Researcher on tipping practices, Nathan Warren. Albert, in the Fairfax District of L.A., you're on Air Talk. Hi, thank you, Larry. And uh, I enjoyed, I came in late to the party in this conversation. I worked as a waiter and I worked as a chauffeur in New York and Los Angeles. And uh, tipping is something that is, um, it could be disappearing, and I hope it doesn't happen. Uh, also, I heard your comments about being the presence of the customer or the client when they are figuring out how much to tip. I would never be in front of anybody when they were signing a tip. That's that's rude and intrusive. If a client was going to tip me as a chauffeur, he's pretty much already made up his mind. Um, you know, chauffeurs know what it sounds like when somebody's unraveling bills. You never look around <laughs> to see what they're, what they're going in their pocket for, and you're always grateful for it. Love that. Um, I think tipping is, a, is something that needs to be re- remain in our uh, in our society. Give somebody a chance to give somebody a little something extra if they really appreciated their service. Or if they didn't appreciate their service, they can tell the manager. Yeah. So thank you for uh, having me on. Yeah, Albert, I appreciate it. Albert in the Fairfax District. Uh, Let's talk with Greg in Long Beach. Uh, Share with us your thoughts about tipping, please. Well, I have the reverse problem uh, at a, a local bakery, which I will give by name because they're fantastic, Colossus Bakery in Long Beach. And they have a sign that says, we pay our workers a fair wage and we appreciate it, but we do not accept tips. I'm from New York City. You tip everybody. It's how you get along. And I feel so awful that I can't give these guys a tip because they're great. And I just want to do it, but I don't want to insult them. Sure. I mean, I know they're trying to solve the issue, but it's like, Take a couple of bucks. I know, but Greg, that would defeat the purpose of what they're trying to do. I'm sure you understand what their intent is here. I, I do, but it's like, it's like, just let me be generous. You know? <laughs> Honestly, I think I personally believe that tipping brings good luck. That if you, yeah. if you forfeit something and you give of yourself to others, 
the universe is going to reward you for it. So to me, it's like an even exchange. I, I respect them, but boy, every time I reach into my pocket and I got to put it back. Greg, given the size of the audience you're talking to right now, I think it's safe to say you're shouting out the name of the bakery is probably worth more than than what you would have tipped. So you've done your part now, Greg. So thank you for the call. I love that call, Professor Warren, because it beautifully speaks to the psychology of tipping. And here you have this bakery that's really as a practical matter, trying to solve this issue by paying, you know, full, what they see at least as full living wages to the people that work at the bakery. Yes. And there's been a few restaurants that have done this and they almost always go back to adopting regular normative tipping practices because two reasons. One is employees want the tips and the other one, and employees can leave. They can go somewhere else if they're not getting those tips. And the second piece is that customers do enjoy tipping when they're given that freedom, when they feel like it's their choice, when they feel like, oh, I'm giving a little bit extra. And we kind of heard that from both of the past couple callers where they were talking about kind of the joy of tipping, the joy of receiving a tip when it's freely given. And I think that that's something that's really being contested right now is this um, choice, whether it's a choice to tip or not. Let me share some more listener uh, comments. John in Palm Springs says, I think the entitlement of servers and bartenders has changed. They expect 20% just for showing up. And quality service from those who take pride in their work has kind of dwindled over time. That's John in Palm Springs. Um, Adam in Topanga says, Restaurants have gone to counter service many places. The act of tipping at the counter versus at the table also makes it feel different. Uh, Jared in the San Fernando Valley says a lot of delivery apps aren't just asking for tips, but also delivery fees that seem to go nowhere. I think it deters people from tipping. Jared, that's an excellent point. Karen in Laguna Wood says, I live with my 97-year-old dad. The older he gets, the more generous he's gotten. He leaves huge tips. $20 tip for a $5 latte. I think as he gets closer to the end of his life, he's just getting more generous. Karen, I that's fascinating to uh, hear. Um, Eddie in West Hollywood says, is it appropriate to tip zero when the service is bad? Well, I think historically people would say that that is okay, that a tip is optional. But Nathan Warren, I do think there's been some sliding on that, that there are people who would say, no, that's not immoral because the tip really represents part of, of, in a sense, the basic wage of the individual. Certainly. And I mean, it's also going to depend so much on the expectations of the the service that you're in. If you're in a full service restaurant, you can leave a 10 percent tip and that's a pretty clear signal that the service was bad. But if you leave a 10 percent tip on um, something else, like you just picked up a Coke from a 7-Eleven and they ask you for a tip, then 10 percent is completely strange and extraordinary. Um so there's definitely these depends on where you are. Um, yeah. 
All right. Uh, Orlando in San Jose emailed, I'm perplexed by the way tips are now automatically being calculated after tax on the bill, where I'm tipping on an additional amount on the bill I'm already obligated to pay. I'm expected to tip on the tax. When I do tip, it's always cash, never on my credit card. Yeah, Orlando, my understanding is that the tip is supposed to be figured before taxes added onto it. You're not, you're not tipping to the government because they levy a tax on uh, the meal that you've enjoyed. But there are places, and this is a mix. I've seen this, Professor. Some places will will do what I think is the proper calculation before the tax is added, but others just include that as well. Uh, certainly. So that's historically, it's you should not be tipping on the tax. And now restaurants and these new platforms are frequently adding the tax in uh, before they calculate the tips, um, it's a way for them to make more money. Why wouldn't they do it if people aren't paying attention? Um, there's an even more kind of uh, almost evil practice I've seen a couple of tipping platforms do, yeah. which is that they'll charge everyone a, a yeah. flat fee, like an 18% tip. Yeah. And then as you're checking out, they'll ask you for another tip on top of the 18%. All right. And so you'll have already paid 18% as just part of your fee. And then they'll ask you for another 15 to 25%. Wow. Hey, thank you, Professor Nathan Warren of BI Norwegian Business School, where he's assistant professor of marketing. Great to have you with us. There's so many callers and comments I didn't have time to include. Thank you for making them. I promise you I'll read them, even if I don't get them all on the air. From all of us at AirTalk, have a terrific rest of your day. Here and now from NPR is next. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com.